You're listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. The session is made possible by our friends with the Christian Standard Bible. Learn about this new translation and the many ways you can enjoy the CSB. Explore online when you visit csbible.com. Join us now in the studio with Michael Card. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Michael, how you doing on this uh, week after Easter time? Huh? I'm I'm still processing. I think that's what Easter always does to me. Uh, it makes you sort of step back and 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 r- try to realize what it is that Jesus did for us uh, this week on the cross and in uh, yeah. that empty tomb. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm still right. processing. A number of years ago, you wrote a book called A Violent Grace, and my books are off the shelf and in boxes right now for some redecorating, so I I miss getting to, to go through that book yeah. this year, but that's been an annual thing that I've tried to do. Thank you for doing that. I don't know how many years ago you wrote that now. Yeah, I don't even remember either, but um, uh, but again, <laughs> you know, that central event that defines the life of Jesus, his sacrifice and his resurrection, and uh, we, you know, mm. we... We throw words at it, but it's it's a mystery, and it's it's just too big for words. It's too big uh, to to grasp. Um, I guess all we can do is fall yeah. down and worship him. Yeah. Well, here's what's ahead on this edition of our podcast. In a moment, we'll be talking with Kevin Belmonte about Amazing Grace, that uh, amazing book he wrote, the biography of William Wilberforce, and the movie that came from it. That's coming up in a moment. Later, you will continue your Walk with Jesus series from the Cove in Asheville, talking about the parables of Jesus found in uh, Luke's gospel. Here's a note from Gail. I loved hearing Shanoa Sykes playing. Now, Shanoa played the violin, remember, when she was in the studio with us, especially since she played two of my favorite hymns. And also Denny Denson. Pastor Denny's words were very encouraging and convicting that we need to face our own shortcomings and confess them and be Mm. forgiven. I'm thankful for your podcasts that are always encouraging in pointing us to Jesus. Well, that podcast was one of our, from our classic series, uh, Denny is with the Lord now. Um, and uh, it's just good to know that he's still touching lives with uh, the ministry God gave him. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think Denny died in 99. And all these years later, tw- more than 20 years later, um, he's still impacting uh, I, I think about Denny all the time. I quote him all the time. He he was uh, he was an amazing brother. Hmm. All right, let's get started with a song from Michael Card here. This was recorded in the studio. It's called By Faith. Uh, how about a word about the song, Michael? You wrote this. Okay, this is just sort of a, a simply an uh, an overview of the passages from Hebrews eleven, where uh, the writer of that uh, letter talks to us about all the amazing things that people did. Uh, because of their faith. All right, let's take a listen to Michael's song, By Faith, and then we'll hear from Kevin Belmonte. Ready? One, two, three. By faith one was commended For the sacrifice he made Another out of holy fear Build an ark the world to save Another left his homeland And as a stranger he'd reside But none received the promise then And so in faith they died A 
Others conquered kingdoms and quenched the fury of the flame. Some made strong in battle, some were raised to life again. But many more were martyred amidst the crowd's loud clamoring. By faith they would not bow the knee or kiss the emperor's ring. Faith understands and offers, it assures and calms our fears. It can shut the mouth of lions and make sense of scars and tears. We persevere in hope and with conscience clean and clear. We walk this fallen wilderness with salvation's pioneer. Being sure of what we hope for, seeing what is yet unseen. Universe from nothingness, new life where none had been. The known made from unknowable, and hope for the comfortless. Who hear and hold on firmly to the faith that they possess. calms our fears It can shut the mouths of lions And make sense of scars and tears We persevere in hope And with conscience clean and clear We walk this fallen wilderness With salvation's pioneer So fix your eyes upon the champion as you seek to run the race. Understanding that he cheers you on as you long for his embrace. So hold on and do not grow weary of the faith that you profess. Remembering that you are ringed around by this cloud of witnesses. Recorded in studio, of course, by Faith. Paul Eckberg on percussion, Steve Mikesell bass, and of course, that's Michael Card. Michael, thank you for that. And I always enjoy our conversations with Kevin Belmonte, and uh, we thought we'd give him a ring today and oh, yeah. talk about some things here. Um, Kevin, welcome back. 
Good morning, gentlemen. Kevin is a writer and uh, really have enjoyed his books through the years. One book we want to focus on, though, is the uh, biography of William Wilberforce that you wrote. How many years ago, Kevin? It was published, let's see, October 2002. Uh, it feels like it should be recently, but that was a number of years ago now. But a very significant book that really uh, is so uh, so great, Michael, for anyone to read who's never encountered it before. I, I heartily recommend it. You've read it too, Mike, right? Yeah, and, and I think what, what I appreciate about what uh, Kevin does in his book is he sort of almost rescues people like Wilberforce. I mean, Wilberforce is a name I kn- knew, but I didn't know anything about him. And Kevin does all of our homework for us and sort of um, retrieves, I guess, these people from history for us and helps us understand how important they really were. Talk about the book and how it came about, Kevin. Well, I I have to be first to say straight away, it really was a a God thing. Uh, It started in my days at seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and he was the subject of my master's thesis. And uh, before the thesis was really done, uh, two friends whose names you'll recognize, came into the equation in terms of helping me and mentoring me and and shepherding what became the book. And those gentlemen are Oz Guinness and Chuck Colson. Mm. And uh, Oz had uh, come to the seminary to pinch hit for one of the professors there, and so I got a chance to hear him and meet him, and I told him about my thesis, and he said he wanted to have a copy because at that time, uh, although Wilberforce is a name that, that some students of history would have known then, he was not nearly as well-known then in 94 as he came to be with the advent of the film and, and recent books and that sort of thing. So Oz entered the picture then, and Chuck Colson just about the same time. And uh, that goes all the way back to the Watergate days, because one of my seminary professors, Richard Lovelace, mentored Chuck after all of the things that unfolded with the Watergate scandal uh, came down and Chuck had come to faith and was really needing someone to help mentor him. So when I wrote to Chuck and told him that my thesis was just about finished and I'd like to send him a copy, he wrote a wonderful warm letter back and said he'd like to get it and pay tribute to Dr. Lovelace. So those gentlemen really helped shepherd the book through to publication. Oz wrote a wonderful blurb and then Chuck wrote the the foreword for the book. So I'm deeply indebted to them both. Wow. Yeah, not too shabby. (laughs) to have support from those two brothers. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things, and, and we all remember the days, don't we, gentlemen, when we were trying to get started, whether it's uh, to have the first album come out or, or uh, land a position there in as a radio uh, presenter, or for me, uh, being a historian, to get the first biography uh, under contract. And uh, I I knew, I think, because Chuck had spoken about Wilberforce in an issue of Christianity Today, I want to say it was from 85, that there was a prior interest there. But when I first met Oz Guinness, uh, he was uh, pinch-hitting, as I say, for this class and doing a presentation. When I mentioned Wilberforce, his face just lit up, and I could tell that uh, here was someone, of course, Oz is a fellow Englishman, as, as Wilberforce was, here was going to be a wonderful conversation. So when the time came, they really helped to intercede and uh, make that book happen for an unknown author, and I, I'm deeply grateful to them. And that uh, came forward as well when the film began to be talked about. You know, fast forward to 2001, and I had finished my book in manuscript. I'd sent it to Oz for a blurb, but unbeknownst to me, 
he forwarded the manuscript to the billionaire who owned the film company, oh. which financed Amazing oh, Grace. Oh, I see. Okay. Wow. And that was sort of a man. Wow. Isn't that something? <laughs> so that was sort of the man behind the curtain thing. And, and I received a letter uh, from the Anschutz Corporation uh, with an A in the shape of an oil derrick. And when I saw the letter in my office, I, I looked at it and I thought, for all intents and purposes, this looks like a bill. <laughs> 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 Better not open so this. O- yeah. So I opened it thinking, oh, you know, what am I on the hook for now, you know, expense-wise? And there was this lovely letter from Philip Anschutz, uh, the gentleman who uh, ran the company that funded Amazing Grace. And uh, he told me that he'd read the book and really enjoyed it and wanted to know, would I be interested in joining the production team for a new film that was in development on the life of Wilberforce? Well, that sounded wonderful, but... I was well and truly confused. I had no idea who this gentleman was. So all I could think to do was to call Oz on the phone, and as soon as I mentioned what had happened, he just started to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) And he confessed to, you know, being the man behind the curtain and the one who'd help make that uh, opportunity happen. So, you know, again, I I think of Psalm 16, verse 6, when it says... The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, and yea, I have a goodly heritage. When I look back on the film and the book and how they all came about, um, you know, I just think of that. The Lord stepped in with acts of kindness and mentoring from people at crucial points, and all I can say is thank you for all that. Yeah, Kevin, hearing you talk about that just reminds me, you know, the buzzword these days is networking, of course, but... Don't you just love making connections? You know, just just putting someone together with someone else. You need to meet him and her, and she needs to meet you, and and uh, then stepping back and and not being a part of the equation, but just watching that flourish. That that's that's really fun to be a part of, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And uh, you know, networking is the term we have. You're quite right, but I also think of the friendships that are birthed out of that. Um, I mean, my goodness. I, I don't know if it was Wilberforce as to how we met Wayne for the first time and did a, f- a first radio show, mm-hmm. but uh, but then I also think back to when Mike came with John Catchings to Gordon during my student days, and I had a chance to say hello briefly, and here we are all these years later with friendships that grow out of a love for books and, and music and art and yeah. faith and all those kinds of things. It's really... Yeah pretty amazing when you think about it all. So you served as, what, historical consultant for the movie? Yes. No, I had a a rather multi-word title. I was lead script and historical consultant oh, for six years. Okay, yes. Mr. Mr. Belmonte, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so tell us a little inside story of having that role. Well, you guys talk about networking and all this stuff. I think the biblical idea is uh, favor. You really were shown favor. And uh, for someone like Oz Guinness or Chuck yeah. Colson, who, um, you know, uh, obviously have a lot on their plate. And my guess is if, if you had sent your manuscript uh, directly, it probably wouldn't have been looked at. But since it came through Oz Guinness, you were really shown favor. And I, I see God's hand in that, too. Oh, I think that's absolutely right, Mike. Yeah. You get so grateful uh, for folks who are well-established and uh, yeah. 
have a certain platform, and uh, when they show stewardship like that and kindness yeah. and invest in the life of a young person, you know, it just pays such wonderful dividends. It does. Why does the story of Wilberforce have uh, such an impact even today, all these years later? Mm. Well, I got asked that question a lot when we were doing the film, and I would go around on speaking engagements, and it, through the six-year process, it was a long time in development, and over time, as I had a chance to think about it, I mean, the world of 200 years ago when Wilberforce and uh, that wonderful Clapham circle of friends, you know, they undertook so many reform endeavors, not just the the wonderful fight to abolish the slave trade, which lasted for 20 years. They had their their hands and their minds devoted to so many different things. But, you know, you think, oh, my goodness, am I ever going to be elected to Parliament when I'm 21 years old? Uh, all the kinds of things that shaped Wilberforce's journey in life. And that in and of itself, you know, becoming a member of Parliament at such a young age is a very uh, unique and extraordinary thing. It, that's going to happen to very few of us, to be quite honest about it. But the one thing I think is evergreen about it, and the one thing that stood out to me about it, is we all have opportunities to use the gifts and talents and opportunities the Lord has given us wherever we are, whether that's in our local town, in our local church, uh, a school setting, we have opportunities to be salt and light, and so to be Wilberforcean, or to better still honor the Lord in the sorts of ways that he did, is to ask yourself those kinds of questions. What are my gifts, my talents, my opportunities? How can I give back and be a part of helping making for a better world? So that's one of the things that stood out to me. Well, Kevin and Mike, just to return to what we were talking about in terms of, you know, favor and networking and connections being made, what, what's, what's the lesson for any of us who are listening now and even participating in this conversation, Kevin? Well, I would be remiss in light of your question if I didn't point to a professor I had at seminary, William Nigel Kerr, who's home with the Lord, but I had one of the last classes he taught in the 90s. And I learned so much from him as a young person, as someone asking big questions about faith and how it unfolds for the future that I was wondering what it was all about for myself. When uh, I edited Wilberforce's book, A Practical View of Christianity, which was sort of his mere Christianity for that era, when I edited that book, I wanted to give Dr. Kerr a copy, and he did something extraordinary when I stopped to visit him in his office. He said, Kevin, let's take a few moments and uh, look ahead to the future that God may have for you. And he put his hand on my shoulder and prayed for me in a very pastoral way. And I'll never forget it. He said, you know, Lord, here's my young friend, Kevin. I suspect there are many books that lie ahead, but be with him and bless him and guide his steps. It was just a lovely, uh, unscripted sort of thing, and I was very moved by it. And uh, I didn't know it then, but it was just a month or so later that Dr. Kerr uh, passed on to heaven and, and met the Lord. So, you know, that kind of thing, he had no way of knowing about the books that were yet to be in my life, much less that the Wilberforce biography that came in 2001. Uh, I think life is full of moments that perhaps at first blush seem kind of small, but from the eternal perspective, they really loom rather large. I mean, all I thought I would do was just stop by and visit an old professor and chat for a little bit and say thank you and give him a copy of a book. And something beyond anything I could have asked or imagined took place. And 
I think of that so often and, and how the Lord just stepped into my circumstances through the kindness of a mentor like Dr. Kerr. And I, I suspect that for many people, there are moments like that that we can look to in our walk of faith. And, and with the gift of hindsight, we begin to see them for all that they can mean for us. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's exactly my uh, experience with uh, Dr. William Lane, who, who uh, mentored me. We never use the word mentor or disciple, but I, I just stopped by his office to ask him a question about a paper. And, uh, and he said, well, let's meet next Tuesday and we'll talk about it. And lo and behold, I discovered he put me on his calendar for every Tuesday for the rest of the semester. And, uh, and he was that person for me, Kevin, who, you know, who encouraged and, 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 uh, and, um, and I was with him right before I was with him when he died. So, uh, yeah, I, I understand that connection completely. Oh, thank you for sharing that with me. What a wonderful story. Yeah. yeah. Well, now, I would be remiss, gentlemen, if I didn't uh, circle back and, and answer the question Wayne uh, had asked just a bit ago about some of the things that unfolded as the film developed. Every film journey is different, and sometimes films take a long time from first uh, concept and the idea of starting a film project to actually getting the green light to shoot the film, and, and Amazing Grace was no different. Uh, I came on board in January of 2001, but we didn't actually start shooting until late of 2005, and wow. that was a long time. And uh, there were a lot of twists and turns along the way, uh, some of which uh, were welcome challenges and others seemed to be setbacks at the time. We went through four different sets of screenwriters. And uh, the first one was Colin Welland, who had done Chariots of Fire. And uh, I was so thrilled to meet him and to interact with him and to really begin to see Wilberforce through his eyes but unfortunately, he wasn't able to continue on with the film, so we were right back to square one with the second set of screenwriters, and that process repeated itself two more times until I began work with Steve Knight, who incredibly gifted screenwriter, and he's Oscar-nominated, uh, and he was the one that we ended up going with for the shooting script. But each time that uh, transition took place, you have to start all over again and try and get them up to speed on things that it had taken me years to learn and send them materials, and you begin to, to feel a sense of kinship. So sometimes that, that bit of a roller coaster ride was, was trying, and it, you get very discouraged. And I remember Oz Guinness came up to the North Shore to speak at Gordon College, and he asked me to come down and visit with him for a little, and we went out to get a bite at a local restaurant, and we were talking about this, and you know, I confessed to him that I was feeling discouraged and wondering if we ever would begin shooting the film. You know, we were four years in, all that sort of thing. And Oz just, he gave me such good advice. He said, Kevin, stay the course and just be faithful and leave the results with God. Uh, he knows better than we do uh, how things are going to unfold. But that encouragement to stay the course and hang in there was really crucial. And it dovetailed with things my wife Kelly was telling me. She was such a, a stalwart source of support through all of this. And uh, I'm really grateful because in the end, working with Steve Knight, some things that made it into the film, uh, they wouldn't have been there otherwise had the circumstances not unfolded in the way that they did. So that's a little of the inside baseball. But again, I, 
I think back to, to mentors and kindness being crucial for me mm-hmm. in times that could be pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great lessons today for all of us, Kevin. Thank you so much for talking about this. Uh, we're undoubtedly going to have you come back and talk more about your life and writings uh, in the future days ahead. So thanks again, Kevin. And, and Michael, as we wrap up with Kevin, um, we're going to ask you to sing this uh, song that was recorded in the studio, Be Thou My Vision. Beautiful song, Michael. Thank mm. you for doing this. You must mean a lot to you, too. It does. It's one of my favorite songs. But Kevin, thank you so much for uh, giving us some of your time. Thank you, gentlemen. It's always great to visit with you. All the best.
a fitting song from Michael that takes us to the halfway point in this podcast. We hope you'll stop by the Michael Card Music Facebook page and interact with other listeners about what you are learning, or reach us directly when you send your comments, song requests, or questions via email. Write to inthestudio at michaelcard.com. There's much more teaching and insights like what you've heard when you check out Michael's books and music. Explore all that is waiting for you at michaelcard.com. Well, there's more music and conversation coming your way after this message in the studio with Michael Card. Here's Michael with a word about the Christian Standard Bible. I like new Bible translations because they help me see new details in the text. That's why I was so excited to be a part of the CSB translation team. The careful attention to original languages from godly scholars has made a version of the Bible that I use. Visit csbible.com and explore the variety of options available to get this fresh translation into your hands. And when you order, receive your 40% discount on CSB purchases at Lifeway. Just type card 40 with no spaces for your 40% discount. The Christian Standard Bible, a great translation, a great selection, and a great discount. So many study Bibles and editions designed to make God's Word accessible in your life. I hope that you'll discover for yourself new insights as you read and study with this new Bible translation. Find a copy online when you visit csbible.com. Back with you in the studio with Michael Card. Let's continue Mike's series, Walk with Jesus, that was recorded at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Mike, you're going to open to the book of Luke and talk about the parables and the mind of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think the parables are a, um, are a wonderful window into the way his mind works. Um, I like to think uh, in terms of his heart and his mind. You, you see his heart in the intimate moments um, with uh, that are especially in the Gospel of John, these uh, long dis- discourses that Jesus has with one other person, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, etc. But I think you see the way his mind works in the parables and how he he leaves things open and he, he teaches with questions. And he, he never explains the parables with one exception. He explains the seed parables to the disciples privately, but otherwise he always just leaves the parables open because he wants you to engage. And I think that's a a really important insight into how his mind works. Well, any new listener, let me explain that you can go back and uh, review this whole series, this Walk With Jesus series, which has been a part of many of our programs in the past. And that's the beauty of a podcast. They're all there to listen to anytime. So let me encourage you to do that. But uh, we're going to get after today's lesson in a moment, but Mike, we're going to ask you to sing a song first. What's what's the song? The song is uh, "Love Crucified Arose," which is sort of a broad overview of a, of a celebration of the, the resurrection. When love was, it's actually a line from an Emily Dickinson poem. When love was crucified, it arose. Shepherd seeking for the lost 
His life the price He paid Love crucified arose The risen one in splendor Jehovah's sole defender Has won the victory Love crucified arose And the grave became a place of hope For the heart that sin and sorrow broke Is beating once again Throughout your life you felt the weight Of what you'd come to give To drink for us that crimson cup So we might really live At last the time to love and die The dark appointed day That one forsaken moment when Your father turned his face away Crucified arose The one who lived and died for me Was Satan's nail-pierced casualty Now he's breathing once again Love crucified arose And the grave became a place of hope For the heart that sin and sorrow broke Is beating once again What is a parable? Um, a parable, it, para uh, means beside, bole is from ball, to throw. It's something you throw down beside something. Uh, a comparison, um, something that is compared to something else to help you make sense of it. So Jesus will start his parable by, by saying, it's like, and then he tells us a little story and then you, know, you get it. And once again, I, I really, uh, uh, I'm am, am, uh, adamantly against people who, who in, kind of infer and sometimes outright say that Jesus is being obscure in his parables and somehow you have to you know, do all these things to understand it and only the elite understood it or whatever. Uh, no. He, he'll, he'll tell, well, we'll look at uh, the, the, the uh, parable of the lost coin and the, what, the lost coin and then the lost son. Lost pearl. You don't say something three times over when you're being obscure. But, but one of the things we're going to look at, the, well, let's just talk about how parables work. Uh, there's two ways that parables work. The first is uh, by identification. Jesus tells his stories in such a way that you're in the crowd and you're going to identify with someone in the crowd. And, and uh, you know, occasionally he'll tell a parable and, and it'll say, the Pharisees understood that he told this story against them, right? Because there's someone in the, in the, in the story that, that they relate to, right? And who you identify with in the parable tells a lot about who you are, okay? So that's the first one, identification. You know, are you the father who's waiting for the son to come back? Are you the lost son? Are you the, the, the righteous son who stayed there and did all the right things? That kind of thing, right? So identification is one way they work. But the big way they work is lack of closure. Now, he's not being obscure, but lack of closure, what it means is he, with one exception, he never explains the parables. 
He'll he'll explain them privately to the disciples, but he doesn't explain them. He, He leaves it there, and that forces you to interact. The lack of closure forces you to engage with the parable. And if you don't engage, you're not going to get it because he's not going to explain it to you. And that's the power that, that uh, his parables have. So uh, process of identification and lack of closure. And uh, Luke is the one who, for some reason, seems to be uh, the most interested in, in Jesus' parables. I think he has more parables than any of the other gospels. And not only does he give us more numerically, he, he shows us parables working. He'll tell us what the context was before Jesus told the parable, which can help you understand it. But then he'll show us the impact that the parable had. So, uh, and, and I'm not completely sure why Luke uh, did that, but um, um, I'm glad he did. Um, parables existed uh, uh, you know, for a long time, I and mean, we see Nathan tells that parable to David about the man with the sheep, right, in Second uh, Samuel 12. Uh, but what I would like to suggest to you, George Guthrie taught me this, I suggest to you that um, there was sort of a rebirth in the interest in parables, and I think it was because of Jesus in his time. Because we have a number of rabbinic parables, but most of those are after Jesus. So... And what's my academic reason? I really want it to be that way. So let me, let me read you a couple of rabbinic parables. And I looked up this morning the dates because I wanted to double check. And they're all just after or long, a long time after Jesus. So that's my theory. If I was a young man, I was writing a PhD thesis, I would write that, write it on that, that Jesus is the person. He doesn't invent parables, but the impact of his ministry was that they became vastly popular after his ministry. But... So I won't take a bullet for this idea of the popularization of the parables, but I think it's a pretty cool idea. So here's, here's one by a, a, a very famous rabbinic teacher called Judah Hanasi. He was also called Judah the Prince. And he's 135 to 217 AD. So he's, you know, 100 years after Jesus at least. Uh, Judah said, unto what is the matter like? That's how you start a parable. See, it's like, you, it's like this. This is like that. Unto what is the matter like? It is like a king who was judging his son, and the accuser was standing and indicting him. When the tutor of the prince saw that his pupil was being condemned, he thrust the accuser outside the court and put himself in his place in order to plead on his behalf. Even so, when Israel made the golden calf, Satan stood before God accusing him, While Moses remained without, what then did Moses do? He arose and thrust Satan away and put himself in his place. Get the point? I mean, it's not as good as Jesus' parable. I mean, we're used to really good, but it's a pretty good parable. Okay, this is one by uh, Simeon ben Yohai. This is second century AD, so after Jesus, once again, this supports my theory. Uh, Simeon taught a parable. It is like men sitting in a ship. One took a drill and began boring beneath his seat. Sounds like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. (laughs) One took a drill and began boring beneath his feet. His fellow traveler said, what are you doing? He responded, what does it matter to you? It's my seat I'm boring under. (laughs) They said, the water will come in and drown us all. That's a pretty good parable. That's in the Talmud. 
Okay, this is uh, Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel's first century, but he's kind of later first century. I mean, he was Paul's teacher. So I, you know, I'm defending my theory. A philosopher asked Rabbi Gamaliel, why is your God jealous of idol worshipers rather than of the idol itself? So why is God jealous of idol worshipers and not the idol itself? He answered, I will tell you a parable. To what is the matter like? It is like a king who had a son, and his son raised a dog whom he named for his father. Whenever the son took an oath, he said, by the life of this dog, my father. When the king heard of it, with whom was he angry, his son or the dog? Surely it was his son. I mean, they're not as good as Jesus' parables, but come on. Um, Here's another one. I don't know who, who told this one. A king had a vineyard for which he engaged many laborers. Oh, this is cool. People will say Jesus was adapting this parable. I want to say this rabbi was adapting Jesus' parable. Okay. A king had a, this is great. A king had a vineyard for which he engaged many laborers, one of whom was especially apt and skillful. What did the king do? See how to draw you in? Okay. What did the king do? He took this laborer from his work and walked through the vineyard with him. When the laborers came for their hire in the evening, the skillful laborer also appeared among them and received a full day's wage from the king. The other laborers were angry at this and said, we have toiled the whole day while this man has worked but two hours. Why does the king give him the full hire even as to us? The king said to him, why are you angry? Through his skill, he has done more in two hours than you did all day. You see the, see the Judaism behind that? He gets rewarded more because he did more. G, when Jesus tells the parable, what's the point? What's it to you if I want to be gracious with my money? See, the, 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 the vineyard owner who is God is gracious. Uh, so Jesus, or it, originally Jesus told a parable of grace, but this guy, whoever he was, messed it up and made it about doing the right things. Okay, so let's look at uh, some of Jesus' parables. They're going to sound so much more you know, interesting uh, as appeared to those uh, older rabbinic par- or those no newer rabbinic parables. Okay, uh, and this is Luke 15. The lost sheep. That's it. The lost sheep. The lost coin. And the lost son. And what Jesus does here, he tells he tells stories with missing pieces that draws you in, and it's you know kind of s- silly to say it's brilliant because Jesus said it, but it is brilliant. So he's going to tell two parables with missing pieces to set you up for the third one. Um, uh, Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So there's Luke giving us the setting of the parable. See, Matthew will just collect a bunch of them together. And rarely, if ever, I'm not sure, Matthew doesn't do this, but Luke gives us the setting and shows us the impact of the parable. Okay, so the sinners are there and uh, uh, the, the Pharisees are there. Um, okay, here's a quote from the Talmud. The, the, the Pharisees said, let not a man associate with sinners, not even to bring him to a knowledge of the law. Isn't that mean? Yeah. Then Jesus told them this parable. 
So the, the setting is we got good guys and bad guys and there's sort of some grumbling going on. So then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So the sheep is valuable because he's lost. His value, his value is, is in his lostness, okay? Uh, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous person who do not need to repent. Okay, the missing piece is, who repented? Did the sheep repent? Who repented in that story? There's kind of a missing piece there, and you're going, repent? Hmm, how is that about repentance? Uh, and there's the structure. There's 100 sheep, there's 10 coins, there are two sons. Uh, the, 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 when the person finds what's lost, they always rejoice. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful structure that they have. Okay, so that's the lost sheep. Here's the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins as opposed to 100 sheep, 10 coins, and loses one. Does she not light the lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully till she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. So there's the rejoicing part. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who repented? The coin? What's going on? I mean, I'm listening to that story. I'm going, where, where are you going with this? And that's exactly what he wants you to be asking. See, he's drawing you in. You've got to engage or you're not going to get it. Okay, so now here's the, here's the, uh, the, the climax. Um, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons, so 100 sheep, 10 coins, two sons. Uh, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them, and, and what I've read is that the older one gets two-thirds and the younger one gets a third. So... Uh, so he gave, he, basically, he, he, he's, he's dependent on whoever's going to take care of him now. Um, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living, in living unsavingly, in Greek. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself. He he glued, the, the word is he glued himself, he attached himself. He attached himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his, feed, to his fields to feed pigs. Now that's as low as you can get in Judaism, only not quite. He gets even lower. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods, these are carob pods, Roman soldiers who were forced to eat them when they were being punished. He, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So that's as low as you can get. Not just taking care of pigs, but wanting to eat what they're eating. That's as bad as it gets if you're a, a young Jewish boy. Uh, there's a, there was a Jewish saying, I'm just reading from my notes. There was a Jewish, Jewish saying that says, when Israel is reduced to eating the carob tree, they will repent. So eating carob is sinking low as you can sink. Okay. When he came to his senses, which is like repenting, so some, finally someone's repenting. And repentance is simply to turn around. And that's what he's going to do. Literally, he's going to turn around and go back home. Okay? Um, 
This is the missing piece. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and am no longer to be worthy to call your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. So the, the repentance is based on the fact uh, of the knowledge of his father. He's not really sorry for what he's done. He's just hungry, right? He's, it, it, repentance for him is turning around and going back home. The, 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 the level of the forgiveness that is shown to him is not dependent upon the sincerity of his repentance. He just comes back. See, see the point I'm saying? I'm not saying you shouldn't be sincere when you repent, but the, the, the degree of your sincerity doesn't uh, determine the amount of forgiveness you, you, you get. God just wants you to come back. Just turn around and come back. Okay? So, um, so he got up and he went to his, his father um, yeah, my note says repentance is based on knowing his father. The older son does not seem to know his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with hesed. What is hesed? It's, it's the per, when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. This boy has no right to expect anything from his father. What does he get? Does he get a second chance? No, he gets everything. He gets a ring and a robe and a banquet. You know, it's not, if you clean up your act, maybe I'll let you come back. It's, that's not hesed. That's not how God forgives. God throws a party when you come back. Just come back. Just turn around and come back, okay? Um, so the, the father sees him, and he's filled with uh, compassion for him. He ran to his son. Uh, the, the Talmud says, he who draws near to me an inch I will draw near to him a mile, and he who walks to me, I will run to meet him. So he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him again and again. He kept on kissing him. Uh, the son said to him, he start, now he's he got his little speech that he's rehearsed, right, on the way back. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but his speech gets interrupted because the father's just loving up on him. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe um, and put on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf. Let's kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost like the sheep and like the coin. See? But now he's found. So they began to celebrate. So there's the parallel with the first two um, uh, parables. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard, you'll like this, Stephanie, the word music is symphonios. He heard a symphony. He heard orchestrated music. There is a band playing, okay? Um, he heard symphonios and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother's come home. They replied, your father's killed a fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving. So the question of this parable is, who's the real slave? The older one who's done the right thing, but really had no love for his father. And the younger one who just came back, you know, when, when the father put the, the robe and the ring and the shoes on him, that's a mark that you're not a slave. Slaves don't wear rings. 
and robes. Well, I guess they probably were. Well, they don't wear robes. They just wear tunics, and they don't wear shoes. So he's, not, he's no longer a slave. He's all dressed up like a son. Um, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your order, yet you gave me, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, notice he won't say my brother, circumlocution, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, well, there was nothing about prostitutes in that early, earlier story. He just stuck that in there, okay? It comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. So here we have this wonderful contrast between this young son who did all the wrong things and this son who did all the right things. Remember who the crowd is that's listening to this? Luke told us, who are they? The sinners and the Pharisees. Who is, it's the process of identification, which is what makes a parable work. Who's going to identify with who? The sinners are going to identify with the younger son, and the Pharisees are going to identify with the older son. And that's the, the power of Jesus' parables. Identification. Who are you going to, I mean, they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. So uh, this son of yours, uh, my son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours, which is literally true. The father doesn't own anything anymore. He's divided between his sons. Two-thirds, you know, this guy owns two-thirds. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost like the sheep and like the coin and is found. Absolutely, you know, Absolutely brilliant. Jesus, the question Jesus wants to ask you to ask is, am I the older brother or am I the younger brother? That's the question you got to ask. Or am I the father? Though you are homeless, though you're alone, I will be your home. Whatever's the matter, whatever's been done, I will be your home I will be your home I will be your home In this fearful and fallen place I will be your home When I move my hand, I will bring you home. Home to your own place in a beautiful land. I will bring you home. I will bring you home. Pray this time together as help you make a deep connection with the Lord 
and we hope you'll let us know how God used this session in your life. Please feel free to post a comment on the Michael Card Music Facebook page. Write via email in the studio at michaelcard.com. Learn about Michael's books and music at michaelcard.com. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or share the link with what you've discovered on your favorite social media platform. We're excited about the partnership with our sponsors at the Christian Standard Bible. Visit csbible.com. The Bible is the foundation of all we do in this podcast, and we're happy to point you to the many ways you can read and study with this fresh translation in your hands. Explore all that's available for you and use the 40% discount on CSB purchases at Lifeway. When you order, use the promotion code CARD40, typed with all caps and no spaces, to receive your 40% discount on CSB purchases through Lifeway. Choose a copy that fits your needs online at csbible.com. And join us again next week for another podcast edition. Now for Ron Davis, Susan Sermon, Lance Mansfield, and our producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for sitting in on this session in the studio with Michael Carr.